0: Before our trip out of town, we were going through the Book of Ephesians, sort of verse by verse. We're um, um, we're not taking the time to to cover every little thing in every verse, but we're kind of hitting the high spots of a letter that was the last of Paul's letters to the churches. Now he wrote a couple afterwards, uh, but they were the individuals. He wrote one to Titus, wrote one to Timothy, but. Um, This book was written, this letter was written about 62 A.D. It was uh, right at the end of um, uh, what's recorded in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 28, where it talks about the two years that Paul spent as, um, uh, well, he was a prisoner, but it was really kind of a house arrest situation in Rome. Uh, And you remember the trouble that he had and the shipwreck and all the other things that happened on his uh, journey to Rome. But uh, now he spends the last two years... Uh, that uh, are identified in the 28th chapter of the book of Acts, right at the end of the book of Acts. And, uh, and it's during that time that he writes this letter. Now, he writes uh, the, the letter to the Ephesians as is a, is a parallel letter to what he wrote to the Colossians. The Colossians' uh, letter was specifically to address a, a, a wrong doctrine, wrong teaching that had infiltrated the church there. and uh, And he covers some of the same themes, but not... Um, well, let me say it this way. He covers same, some of the same themes in Ephesians, the letter to the Ephesians that he wrote to the uh, Colossians, but he does it in a general sense. He doesn't uh, address specifically wrong doctrine in the book in the church at Ephesus. And uh, really the oldest texts don't even show that, that the letter was written specifically or uh, exclusively to the Ephesians. Uh, the words at Ephesus are not in the original text. So this is a letter that Paul wrote that was a universal letter. It was something that was supposed to be or intended to be passed around from church to church. Uh, it would certainly include uh, the Ephesian church, but not exclusively to them. And as a result, Paul writes the, the letter to the Ephesians as, um, as kind of a big-picture letter. He kind of steps back and says, this is what the church should look like, and here's what the church should do in the world. And so it's a, it's a very important um, instruction for us. It's, uh, it's something that, that certainly stands the test of time because what the church was supposed to be in his day, the church is supposed to be in our day. So we're going to cover in chapter 3 the first uh, 13 verses. Don't worry, it's only two sentences. <laughs> but we're going to cover the first 13 verses this morning and kind of hit the high spots of what Paul is talking about, about this present dispensation. So let's start in verse 1. For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles, if you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which is given me to youward, how that by revelation he has made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote before in a few words, whereby when you read you shall understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel, whereof I was made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of his power, unto me who am less than the least of all saints is this grace given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the world has been hid in God, who created all things by Jesus Christ, to the intent that now under the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God, according to the eternal purpose which He purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of Him. That's all one sentence. Verse 13. Wherefore, I desire that you faint not at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. Now, Paul starts off in chapter 3. Well, first of all, he didn't write in chapter and verses any more than you would write a letter in chapter and verses. The translators divided it for reference sake and for, for ease of, uh, well, ease of reference. So that, uh, that we'd have a starting point and an ending point as much as they were able to to, uh, to identify. Now, in the original Greek, there is no punctuation. There is no... Uh, uh, verse designation or anything like that and so the the translators put in the punctuation as near as they could identify the the proper place according to the language and the use of the language itself and and for the most part they do a real good job Uh, there are some places where where there might be some discrepancy and and so forth but uh, but uh, at least for our purposes this morning they seem to have gotten everything right But If you'll notice in your reading through there If you're reading with us in the King James You'll find a lot of colons and semicolons and stuff like that I think the translators got to a certain point Where they didn't know what to put in there Because Paul just keeps talking and talking And talking and talking and talking But that kind of fits the theme of the book of Ephesians Because as I said Paul writes from a big picture standpoint And there is no ending place When it comes to the things of God And there's always something more you can say To try to describe in natural terms what is really indescribable because they're spiritual. So when Paul starts off in verse 1 and says, for this cause, he's referring back to something that we read before in chapter 2. He finishes, uh, well, the the second chapter of Ephesians is primarily Paul talking about the power of God in us. And God having raised us from the dead with Jesus to make the Gentiles one with the Jews in the body of Christ. And so he says, for this cause, because the Gentiles are part of the body of Christ too, I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles. And notice what Paul says. Paul is in prison because of the preaching of the gospel. Nero is the, um, uh, the Caesar. He's the, the leader of Rome at that point in time. And in just... About two, two and a half years after Paul writes this letter, a little bit after 64 A.D., Nero is going to put him back in prison. Paul gets out of prison in about 62. He's put back in prison in 64 when, uh, when Rome burned. Now, Nero, by all accounts, Nero is the one that had Rome burned. And the people revolted against Nero. And so Nero, as the Caesar and one of his uh, top administrators, started the rumor that the Christians did it because they didn 't uh, agree with and and uh, go along with all the the pagan gods of Rome and so forth, and so Peter and Paul, as uh, the the universally recognized leaders of the church, were put in prison we don 't know how long Paul stayed in prison and once he was put in in sixty four uh, a d around about that time sixty four maybe late sixty four early sixty five something in that uh, time range, but we know that that was the time that they, that he wrote the letters to uh, to Timothy and to Titus. And those letters are totally different than anything else that he wrote. Because the first letter he wrote to Timothy. Probably during this uh, Roman imprisonment. During this period of time. 60 to 62. He said to Timothy. He said I want to go. But, you, but it's better for you if I stay. It's better for the church if I stay here. His second letter to Timothy is forget that. I'm out of here. I'm ready to go. He knows his time is up. And so when Paul writes this. He does not say that he's a prisoner of Nero. He says he's a prisoner of Jesus for the purpose of helping the Gentiles. Now, keep that in mind because in a couple of verses, we're going to explain something about Paul's dispensation and the present dispensation and what Paul understood about the time that he lived that's going to make a lot more sense to you. But keep that in mind. He said, for this cause, I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus, for you Gentiles, if you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which is given me to you Now, of course, they've heard. He's not saying, well, I hope you have. Of course, he knows that they have. In other words, he's saying, I'm the prisoner of Jesus because of what you've already heard that God has given me. How that by revelation, he has made known unto me the mystery as I wrote before in a few words. Now, nobody really understands what he's talking about writing before in a few words. Because there are very few things that he said about uh, doctrine up to this point. And he goes even further. And says, which when you read, uh, where was I? In verse 4, whereby when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. That would indicate that he's talking about something that was not in the letter that, he's already, that they've already read up to this point. So what letter is he wanting them to read? Paul knew and Paul understood, and this is very important in understanding the ministry of Paul. Paul understood that his letters were circulated throughout all the churches. He knew that what he had written to the Romans is being read in Ephesus. He knew that what he had written to the Corinthians was being written in Rome or read in Rome. He knew that the teachings were going all throughout the world, meaning that part of the world, the Europe and the Middle East. He knew that these letters were being passed around. And so he says, I know you know about me and I know you know that what God has given me is for the Gentiles To make them understand who they are in Christ Jesus. And I've written these things before to you in a few words. Now the few words he's talking about in my opinion. Are the letters that have been written to the church up to this point. And this is the last one. So he's talking about what he wrote to the Romans. He's talking about the letters that he wrote to the Corinthians. There were four letters that he wrote to the Corinthians. We have two of them maybe three. Second Corinthians may be a combination of two of the letters. Nobody's in agreement about that. So. Uh, we know that there are some letters, some things that he wrote, that uh, particularly to the Corinthians that we don't have. But he wrote letters to the Galatians. He knows that those have been read throughout the churches. He wrote to the Philippians. He just has written to the Colossians. It's possible that they, um, uh, since these letters were delivered together, that they have not read, read that one yet, but will soon. And that may be another thing that he's referring to when you read. See, it indicates it's something that they've either read before or something that they're about to read. But either way, he's talking about all my letters show what God has given to me, what God has revealed to me for the purpose of the Gentiles. Again, this is going to be important when we talk about dispensations. Which in other ages, verse 5, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men as it is now revealed. He said, no, he doesn't say nobody knew anything about it. He says it wasn't known like it's revealed now as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the spirit that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. And let's start going through some of this a little bit. Let's talk about dispensations. There are five dispensations that are identified in the Old Testament. He said in verse two, if you've heard of the dispensation given to me. Well, what does he mean, dispensation? The word dispensation can also mean administration. We know in, in our democratic, what well, used to be a democratic society. Um, we know that, um, that there are, uh, every four years, we vote for a new president. And if there's, uh, if somebody is not an incumbent and you're serving their second term, then it's a change of administration. And even sometimes when the same guy is reelected, the administration changes somewhat. But let's assume that there's a totally different sh- uh, change, totally different president coming in. That person establishes his own administration. Now, what does that mean? It usually means the people that used to work there are fired. It usually means a replacement of cabinet members and different bureaucrats and, and whoever else is necessary to run the government. But it does not mean that everything changes. Or maybe we should say it this way. It used to mean that not everything would change. See, the same set of laws would apply to each president. Remember those days? So it's the same framework or intended to be the same framework, but different people operating in the, uh, under that framework. So in a new administration or a new dispensation, some things change and some things remain the same. Now, when it comes to spiritual dispensations, the thing that always remains the same is God. God's dealing with man is always the same. Man's dealing with God changes from dispensation to dispensation. For example, the five dispensations that are identified in the Old Testament, there are seven total. But the five that are identified in the the, um, Old Testament... First, started with creation, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. It's called the Age of Innocence. It ends with the fall of man. The next dispensation was the dispensation of conscience. It started when God gave Adam and Eve skins. He uh, offered a sacrifice on their behalf, showed them how this works. Killed the animals to provide skins and clothing for them. And this lasted through Noah's flood. Now, dispensations always start with God reaching toward man in some way, either a general or specific way. And the dispensation always ends with the failure of man. The age of innocence, the dispensation of innocence ended with the fall of man in the garden. The dispensation of conscience ended with Noah's flood. Next came the dispensation of human government. That ended with the Tower of Babel. The next dispensation was the dispensation of promise It started with God reaching out to Abraham and making a covenant with him. Now, that dispensation lasted all the way up until the Egyptian captivity of uh, Israel going into captivity uh, uh, in Egypt. And it lasted until God raised up Moses to give the children of Israel the law. That was the dispensation of promise. Abraham's dispensation was the dispensation of promise. And then came the law, the dispensation of the law. Now, the law was kind of a continual failure of man because once the law was given man saw very clearly that he couldn't keep it so there was no possibility which was the intent of the law to begin with god didn't give the law so that man would have a list of rules now that may be bad news to some of the church who's looking for a list of rules and if we can just keep the rules then we know we're okay with god but the thing that never changed as far as from God's standpoint is the way that man could appear or relate to God was always the same, and that was faith. If you look at Hebrews chapter 11, it's a list of the hall of fame of faith. And you've got people in every dispensation that are listed in that in that list. And it doesn't talk about Enoch, for example, who's in the, the um, earlier dispensation. It doesn't say that Enoch pleased God because he kept the law. Doesn't say Enoch pleased God because he operated according to his conscience. Doesn't say that Enoch pleased God for anything other than he walked by faith. So faith was the common denominator. Faith was the thing that always remained the same. It's what God required of man to approach him. Not the law, faith. Even in the dispensation of the law, it still took faith to approach God. Not the keeping of the law, but faith. Now, when Paul talks about the dispensation, That's been given to him. He knows. By the way, the law, the dispensation of the law ended with the crucifixion of Jesus. That that began a new dispensation. Now, what is the new dispensation? Paul says of this new dispensation that the prophets before didn't know about it. He said that the sons of men had no idea the reality of what this new dispensation would be. What is this new dispensation? the new dispensation he calls i tell you what let me show it to you hold your finger here in ephesians chapter 3 but turn with me over to colossians chapter 1 notice what paul says about this dispensation in the parallel letter that he writes to the colossians colossians chapter 1 we'll start reading in verse uh, 25 paul says whereof i am made a minister According to the dispensation of God. Paul talks a lot about dispensations. He's the only one that does. You're going to see why in just a minute. Dispensations are real important to Paul. Peter never says a word about it. James never says a word about it. John never says a word about it. But dispensations are really important to Paul. Because he understood the times that he was living in. He said whereof I am made a minister. According to the dispensation of God. Which is given to me for you. Talking to the Gentiles, talking to the church, given to me for you, the dispensation of God is given to me for you. For what purpose? To fulfill the word of God. Now, this word fulfill means the word word complete. Paul understood something. By the time he writes the letters, the last two letters to the churches, the letter to the Colossians and the letter that, that we identify as to the Ephesians, all the churches, but titled to the Ephesians. By that point in time, Paul understood that his ministry was not just to go in missionary journeys. It was not just to start and establish churches. Paul realized that his ministry was to complete or finish the Bible. Now, you might say, well, Pastor Mike, what about Revelation? What about the letters that John wrote? Those were much later. Yeah, but it really has nothing to do with who we are in Christ. When Paul talks about the dispensation of God given unto him to complete the word of God, he's talking about to finish the message of who we are in Christ and what Jesus did for us through his death, burial, and resurrection. Now, that makes more sense when you understand that Paul's talking to the Galatians some years earlier, and he writes to them and says, the whole world will be judged by my gospel. Why? Because God gave unto him the dispensation of finishing the word of God. The knowledge of who we are in christ let's keep reading verse 26 even the mystery he calls this a mystery now what is a mystery a mystery is something that's hidden now who's it hidden from it was hidden from everybody prior to the dispensation that we're in now paul's revelation and paul's teaching and paul's letters are given to us to reveal the mystery but the world didn't know anything about it what is that mystery well the mystery the dispensation That he's talking about, the mystery is Christ in you, which is the hope of glory. In other words, the mystery is the new birth, the new creation. Now, you'll find in Ezekiel 36 and also in Isaiah that both of them refer in just a few very short scriptures to the new birth. But nobody understood what it was really going to be about. There was reference to it, there was an indication, there was something that pointed this direction but there was no real understanding of it. That's why, well, I should give you the rest of the dispensations. The dispensation we're in now is the age of grace, the dispensation of grace, the church age, the age of the new creation. There's any number of titles you could give to it. Paul uses them all. And then the only other dispensation that's mentioned is, and there was a lot more information about this one in the Old Testament than there was the age of grace, that the final and seventh and final dispensation will be the millennium when Jesus comes and sets up his earthly kingdom on the earth. That's why the Jews kept coming to him and said, if you're the Messiah, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Because they had, they had no clue about the age of grace. They had no clue about the church age. They thought that once the age of the law ended, the dispensation of the law ended with the Messiah, then the Messiah would set up his earthly kingdom for a thousand years here on the earth. That's why they kept questioning Jesus about, is this the time now that you're going to set up your earthly kingdom? Jesus kept saying, my kingdom is not of this world. Why? Because Jesus understood that there was a a dispensation in between those two points that they were trying to connect. And it's the age of grace. That'll end when the church is removed from the earth. So let's keep reading. Verse 26, this is Colossians 126. Even the mystery which has been hid from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to who? To the world? no, to his saints. See, a mystery is something that people that are involved and a part of the group understand, but nobody outside does. Well, what's the mystery? What is it that we understand? Well, we understand about the new birth. Why? Because it happened to us. We understand about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because he lives in us. We understand about being filled with the Holy Spirit. Why? Because he filled us. We understand about the gifts of the Spirit, not only through the knowledge that Paul brings us through the teaching of the Word, but because we've experienced these things. We understand that the body of Christ is like the, the church works together as the body of Christ because of the teaching that Paul gave us, but also because we see how it works. We see that you've got one certain part, and I've got another part, and somebody else has got another part, and everything's supposed to work together. See, we understand these things because we're in But nobody understood them before because nobody was in. Who could understand the new birth? Jesus tried to explain it to us or tried to explain it to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. He said, except a man be born again, he cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. Nicodemus says, what? Go back into your mother's womb to be born again? What are you talking about? Now, Nicodemus was a ruler of the Jews. He was knowledgeable in the Old Testament teachings, he was knowledgeable in the law and the prophets. He knew what the Old Testament said. And when Jesus starts talking about being born again, he's dumbfounded. Why? Because this is the mystery that was hid from the ages. We take it for granted. But it was God's mystery. It was his plan from the beginning. And you'll see as we go further into what Paul says, you'll see why it was such an important part. And why it was so important. Verse 27, to whom God would make known, to the saints, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's the new creation. Now turn back with me to Ephesians chapter 3. Let's pick up where we were. Paul says, since you've heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which has given me to you word, notice he gave me, the, gave God God gave Paul the dispensation, the assignment to deliver the word of God, the preaching of of who we are in Christ for the purpose of the Gentiles. Why the purpose of the Gentiles? Because God made both Jews and Gentiles a part of that new creation. And that's what the Jews never, even today, refuse to accept in large part. How that by revelation, let's read verse 3 again, how that by revelation he has made known unto me the mystery as I wrote before in a few words. I think he's talking about the other letters written to the church. Whereby when you read, <clears throat> you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. Remember Peter writing to the church says, Paul writes about things that are hard to understand. Why? Because he's still thinking with a Jewish mindset. Paul was one of the... the. Um, Paul's conversion experience, you remember how he met Jesus on the road to Damascus? Ask yourself this, why in the world did God go to so much trouble to reach Paul? Remember what Paul said about people that had damaged and worked against his ministry. He said, Alexander the coppersmith has done me much harm. The Lord rewarded him according to his works. Why didn't Paul pray that God would do the same thing to Alexander that he did for him? Paul went out, or God went out of his way to reach Paul. Why doesn't, uh, and this is in First Timothy, the first letter that he writes to Timothy. Why didn't Paul say, Alexander the coppersmith has done me much harm? But I understand that because I did the church harm too. God meet him on his road to Damascus. Paul understands that God did something unique and exclusive with him that doesn't usually happen. I don't know about you, but I did not get saved because I saw a light shining from heaven. I didn't fall off of a donkey and get saved. I didn't hear a voice from heaven and see a vision. Did you? We would certainly have to agree that those types of situations, if they ever occur, are extremely rare. Why Paul? Paul was the perfect guy to take the gospel to the Gentiles. He was trained as a Jew but he was a Roman citizen and he was a very intellectually educated person. He knew the Greek culture. I say Greek because the Romans assimilated the Greek culture. When, when Romans, when the Romans conquered the Greeks, they took everything of the Greek culture. They could, they even took their gods and renamed them as their own. The the Greek God Zeus became the, the Roman God, Jupiter and so forth. They took everything and assimilated everything they could into the Greek culture of the Greek culture into the Roman culture. Well, Paul knew what the Greek culture was. One of the most outstanding things about Paul is something that we with a Western mindset completely miss. I didn't get it until I went on this last trip. Paul's discourse at Mars Hill in Athens, he preaches and talks about you guys have a, a worship gods of all shapes, sizes, and varieties. You've even got a temple to the unknown God in case you left somebody out. They say, archaeologists tell us that there was a a, a, a promenade where there were 3,000 either temples or statues of other gods on one street. And apparently this is what Paul was grieved in his heart about when he walked through this thing and then made his discourse on, on the top of Mars Hill. He said, you guys are worshiping so many gods. You're afraid you left somebody out, so you've got a statue or a temple to the unknown god. Well, he tries to tell them who, they, who God is, and he uses a lot of Greek literature, writings in Greek literature. We've assumed we've assimilated some of the, the things that he says and, and uh, during that discourse, and we say, "Oh, wasn't that wasn't that beautiful?" Like, for example, in Him we live and move and have our being. Do you know that Paul is quoting from Greek poetry when he says that? We think, oh, that was inspired by the Holy Ghost. Paul's just using something they know. And as a result, Paul was the ideal guy to reach the Gentiles. Now, I want you to keep this in mind because verse 13 is going to really wrap this up when he talks about his afflictions and the tribulations and troubles that he's in. It was all because of the way that God used him. And he was the perfect guy to be used because he was, he was perfect for the Romans, he was perfect for the Jews, and he was perfect for the Greeks. He was the ideal individual to reach everybody. And that's the person that God gave the revelation to about all of us being joint heirs in Christ, you and Gentile alike. So that's why he writes about the dispensation and the mystery that's been given unto him. He says, I know this is new to you. It's new to everybody. It was new to me too. Verse 5, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. No wonder Paul wrote, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for it is the power of God. Because he realized the gospel that he had been given, that the whole world would be judged by, is the mystery that had been hidden from the ages And is the power of God in and of itself. Whereof I was made a minister. According to the gift of the grace of God given unto me. By the effectual working of his power. Paul does the same thing here that he does in chapter 1. Where he starts stacking words about power. He starts stacking up words power, power, power. He does the same thing in this verse. He's talking about the power of God. The power of God. The power of God. One of the things that's interesting is that when Paul wrote to the Corinthians, Corinth was the next place he went to after he preached at Mars Hill. He preached on Mars Hill. And, uh, and, and in theological circles, the, the, uh, the sermon on Mars Hill was, was magnificent because he incorporates things from the Greek culture. He incorporates things from the Old Testament. He incorporates new uh, creation theology. He just brings everything together. The problem is it didn't work. He didn't get anybody saved. Everybody heard what he preached and said, oh, wow, we're going to have to hear some more about this. That's what intellectuals usually do. People that hear the gospel on an intellectual level, most of the time they say, well, we want to learn more. Paul talks about certain people that are always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. That's a picture of the intellectual. Well, I want to know more. Well, why aren't you satisfied with the truth? So when Paul goes to Corinth, he goes as a failure. He goes having accomplished nothing when he had one of the greatest audiences of his ministry experience in Athens on Mars Hill. So he goes to Corinth and he said, I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus and him crucified. In other words, I'm not going to try to be intellectual with you guys. Probably wouldn't matter mattered. they weren't real smart to begin with. But he says, specifically, immediately after, he talks about my first time with you. He writes this some years later. But he says, remember my first time with you. I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus and him crucified. Forget Greek culture. Forget sayings from the Greek poetry. Forget modern day writings that I could incorporate and show you how the the mythology is similar to some of the ideas of God and faith and so forth. Forget about all that. The only thing I determined to know among you was Jesus and crucified, that your faith would not stand in the wisdom of men, that means the intellect of men, but only in the power of God. In other words, Paul seems to come to Corinth with the idea that, while I had one of the greatest audiences ever in Athens on Mars Hill, and nothing came as a result, forget this stuff, I'm going back to showing them the power of God. People sometimes wonder, what's going to make a change in the world that we're in? It's not going to be our preaching. It's not going to be how much we know. It's not going to be our ability to relate to the culture. It's not going to be how we dress. It's not going to be how we cut our hair. It's not going to be how we try to look cool and look like the world. It's not going to be how we tell the world how tolerant we are and accept gay marriage and abortion and whatever else is wrong. There's only one thing that's going to make a difference in this world, and that's the power of God. That's why our prayer should be for the power of God to be manifest. So many times we pray, Lord, bring people to our churches. For what? So we can show them how cool we are. So we can show them we're not so much different than you. You're living in sin. We try not to, but hey, we're all in this together which in a lot of ways is is becoming the message of the church. We don't care if you're you're involved in gay marriage. We don't care if you're in adultery. We don't care if you're in in sin in some other way. That doesn't matter. Just come be part of our fellowship. Paul said not to fellowship with people like that. What are we doing? We've exchanged the power of God for the wisdom of man. And the only thing that's going to make a difference is showing people the power of God. And folks, I believe there is a wave of power that will make a huge, huge difference in this last day world. Amen? Amen. Verse 8, unto me, he said, here's this grace that was given unto me, who am less than the least of all saints. Now, Paul is not putting himself down. He's just saying, as a human being, I'm not worthy of what God gave me. And nobody else is either. Paul's not saying he's the least of the saints because he's worse than the rest of them. He's not. He just operated in a little different vein than they did. Some, sin, some people's sins are public and some people's sins are private. But nobody's without sin. We look at the ones whose sins are public and we think, oh, I'd never do that. You just need to thank God your had not been made public. Unto me who am less than the least of, this, of all saints is this grace given. He's just saying nobody earns it. It's God's work, not man's. That I should preach. Here's my purpose. Here's why God gave me this revelation of, of the new creation. That I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Now, one of the things about the book of Ephesians is interesting is that Paul uses superlatives. He creates words. Uh, in many cases, he creates words to create or, or uh, um, profess these superlatives. He puts two different words together that, that in other language and in, in common writings, aren't appropriate. They don't. That's not the way that they're written. That's not the way people use the language. But he does. He talks about the superabundance of God. He talks about the excellency and the the unsearchable riches. Of Christ, He talks about the power of God that's beyond understanding and so forth. He makes up words to show this is not normal human stuff. God is so much beyond anything that we can imagine. We have to make up words to describe it. Interestingly enough, remember when Paul said that he was caught up into heaven. When he writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he said, I knew a man in Christ about 14 years ago, whether in the body or out of the body, I can't tell. Such a one was caught up into the third heaven. He said, I heard things that I'm not able to describe. King James says, I heard things that are unlawful to speak. That's not really what it means. It doesn't mean God won't let him say it. It means I don't have words to describe it. So even in the letters that Paul writes to the churches trying to describe things that are beyond our comprehension, he makes up words to describe them. But the things he saw in heaven, there's no words to make up to describe it. You can't just take two words and put them together like he does here. He can't just take two words and put them together and say this is what I saw in heaven. Because what he saw in heaven can't be compared. There's no point of reference for us to understand no matter what words he puts together. That's what he's saying. He's saying I saw things in heaven that are so great that our word, we don't have words to describe it. Not Hebrew words, not Roman words, not Greek words. We don't have any words to describe what I saw. Verse 10. No, I skipped one. Verse 9. And to make all men see, here's what his dispensation is for. And to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery. Fellowship means partnership, it's also another word for administration. What is the fellowship of the mystery? What their part is in this new creation. To make all men see, Jews and Gentiles alike. To make all men see what is their part in this new creation, which from the beginning of the world has been hid in God. From the beginning of the world, this word world does not mean the earth. I'm sorry, it does not mean the the world that we live in from Adam forward. It means the earth when it was created in the beginning. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Verse 2 says, and the earth was, literally became without form and void. Something happened between Genesis 1, 1 and Genesis 1, 2 to take the earth, the heaven and the earth that God created in verse 1 to cause it to become without form and void because Isaiah 45 says that God did not create the world without form and void. So something happened. What was it during that period of time? Well, the Bible hints to us that some part during that period of time may not have been the the total part, uh, the total explanation. some part during that period of time satan had a kingdom here on the earth he was operating under god's control and in god's administration god's organization but then satan rebelled and satan destroyed the earth it could very well have been that it was during that period of time probably in my thinking that during that period of time was when satan rebelled against god took a third of the angels with him in his rebellion and was cast out of heaven to the earth Well, what would be the effect of Satan as a fallen angel here on the earth that he was cast out to? Given enough time, he would destroy the earth like he's trying to do now. The thing that makes the difference between that age and this age is the church is the thing that's holding him back. Now, keep that in mind because the next verse is going to point that out. So it says that this was God's plan To make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery, the new creation, which from the beginning of the world has been hid in God who created all things by Jesus Christ to this intent. Notice verse 10. This is so important. To this intent. To the intent that now, everybody say now. That now, the church age, this dispensation, the church here on the earth, believers born again, recreated by the Spirit of God, To the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places. Now when Paul refers to this he doesn't mean just evil spirits. Or just he doesn't identify that he just means evil spirits. It could be the angels in heaven along with evil spirits. But he says to the intent that now under the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church. By the church is really better translated through the church. Known through the church, the manifold wisdom of God according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Here's what this means. It means that God's plan from beginning, before he ever created the world, God's plan was that you and I would be born again, infused and indwelt by the Spirit of God, empowered in the name of Jesus to show the devil how smart God is. See, the devil has every right to operate here on the earth. Some people would say, well, Pastor Mike, aren't we going to pray for France? A little late. I sure hope they fix that workplace violence situation they've got going over there. But see, some people want to pray so that the devil stops working. The devil has every right to work here in the earth. He's got a lease that Adam gave over to him in in the Garden of Eden. But his lease will run out. But until that time, the devil has every right to operate here on the earth. And where's the surprise that things like this happen? The Bible says in the last days, men will get worse and worse. Has anybody figured out that's already begun? Don't think it's going to get better. Oh, but Pastor Mike, shouldn't we pray? Let's have special prayer meetings to stop the work of the devil. Good luck with that. You can pray all night, every night. And the devil's still going to work. Because he's got a right to operate here on the earth, Adam gave him that right. Not God, Adam did. Adam gave Satan the authority, transferred the authority that he had been given, at least a portion of it, had transferred a portion of the authority that he was given by God to operate here on the earth. And Satan has every right to operate here. Every right to operate here. He didn't have every right to operate against you, against the people of God. You can use your authority to stop him operating against you but you can't use his authority your authority to stop him from operating against uh, others on the earth. You can't stop him from working against nations. he's got a right to do so now to the degree that he affects the church, the church can pray so that they are shielded and protected but you can't stop the authority of the devil has, the authority of the devil has been given by Adam here on the earth. As such, men are going to get worse and worse, not better and better. Violence is going to increase, not decrease. Well, what's, it going, to, what's going to happen in the future? I mean, this French president, anybody ever heard a French president talk like this guy did after a fact? We're going to operate without pity, without mercy. Good. Have at it. Is it going to stop anything? No, it'll shift the focus, but it's not going to stop anything because men are going to get worse and worse. Well, what if the nations get together and destroy ISIS? Then it'll crop up under some other name, some other place because men are going to get worse and worse. Well, what's the role of the church? The role of the church is to be the church. The role of the church is not to stop the devil in the earth. The role of the church is to be the church so that they stop the devil at the church's door. And I don't mean the church building's door. I mean you. You're the house of God. We're supposed to live above the things of the earth and the works of the devil. And this is exactly what God's purpose was from the beginning. See, the devil has every right to look at, the, look at mankind and say to God, this isn't fair. I defeated your man. You gave Adam your authority here on the earth. You put everything that you made under the work of his hands, under the authority of his hands, and he messed up. He failed. He fell. I defeated him. God says, yeah, that's right. But now that they've got you living inside of them, they've got your power and they shouldn't have it. And God laughs and says, that was my plan before you were even created. My plan was... To live inside my people, this new creation, this new dispensation creation. So that they use my power and my authority and my ability to stop anything and everything that you would bring against them. And the Bible says that's so that God could show the manifold wisdom that was hid from the world from the ages. It was hid from the world, it was hid from the devil too. The Bible says about the devil, if he had known that Jesus would be raised from the dead, he never would have killed him. Don't ever think that the devil is as smart as God. The word that Paul uses here for many fold literally means many colored. In other words, God has put the church here on the earth infused with his power, his life, his spirit, his power and the name of Jesus. So that you are like a brilliant rainbow whenever you walk into the room. You walk into the devil's territory, you're like a shining light. You're like a diamond that that reflects different colors like a rainbow. The devil tries to tell you you're nothing, that you're worthless, that God has to let you into the family because Jesus died for the sins of the world, but he really didn't do it for you. And if he'd known it was just you, he wouldn't have done it at all. And nothing could be further from the truth. He sees you shining like a brilliant light everywhere you go. You need to see yourself that same way. And that's exactly what Paul says by the Holy Ghost about you. Let me read it again. To the intent that now under the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church or through the church. The manifold wisdom of God, the many colored wisdom of God, according to the eternal purpose, which he purposed in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This was his eternal purpose. This was hidden from the world, from the foundations thereof. This is something that was hidden from every age. Adam didn't know about it in the Garden of Eden. Noah didn't know about it in his time. The people in the the age of the dispensation of human government sure didn't know anything about it. Abraham didn't know anything about it. Moses didn't know anything about it. And it was only only when Jesus came that somebody first starts talking about it and the people he talked to about it didn't have a clue. But then after Jesus is raised from the dead, God picks a man named Paul. He says, I want you to tell people about this. And that's his, that's his ministry. That's his work. And that's what he does. And that was God's eternal purpose. And it was all wrapped up in Jesus. It was all wrapped up. You remember how the Bible says Jesus hated the shame of the cross? He withdrew from it and hated the shame of the cross. The cross signified man's failure the end of the dispensation of law. But the resurrection, the resurrection. I've had people say that you're saying, Pastor Mike, I don't know, why don't our church have crosses on it? Because the cross is a place of defeat. Now I'm not saying you shouldn't wear a cross around your neck. I don't care what you do. But I don't want a cross in the church. And if there's any way that we could put a painting of, a, of, a, of an empty tomb in here, I'd be okay with that (laughs) because it's not about the cross. The cross was a place of, of suffering. The cross was a place of defeat. The cross was a place where the devil had Jesus, that the devil had destroyed God's son on the earth. The devil knew who he was, and he thought he had him. But it was the resurrection that turned things around, not just the death of Jesus. Without the resurrection, there's no victory. And that was God's eternal purpose and it was all wrapped up in Jesus. Now that brings us to verse 12. Because God's eternal purpose centered around Jesus, it was fulfilled in Jesus. Notice what it says, we have because of Jesus. In whom we have boldness and access with confidence by the faith of him. In other words, it means simply this. It means that since God's eternal purpose was to have this new creation, this God-man on the earth. I'm not talking about Jesus. Jesus was a God-man on the earth too. I'm talking about you. God's eternal purpose, hidden from the ages, was that you would be his God-man here on the earth. All man, recreated by the Spirit. Since that was wrapped up in Jesus, it says, number one, you have access And number two, it says you have faith or that you have boldness with all confidence. The word boldness means freedom of speech. Paul is writing a Roman term here. And it's something that every Roman citizen had in in ancient Rome. What we know of as ancient Rome. One of the, um, uh, the rights guaranteed every man was freedom of speech. Every man had a right to say whatever he thought. He had no... There was no way that the government could come down, or legally anyway, I guess it happened. But uh, but legally, it was prescribed for every Roman to be able to speak his mind and say what he thought or what he felt, no matter what. And the government was not supposed to be able to stop that. Remember when it was like that in our country? Now it's that way for everything except Christianity or some aspects of Christianity, pretty much. But anyway... Freedom of speech is the thing that Paul says that we have. In other words, it says because this eternal purpose was wrapped up in Jesus, finished in Jesus, and completed through his work that brought about the resurrection, it says since that's the case and you are now the God-man, you should be able to, as Paul wrote to the uh, the Hebrews, excuse me, Hebrews chapter 4, let us come boldly to the throne of grace. You shouldn't have to sneak in any back door, you shouldn't have to feel like you need to knock and make sure God's not busy before you come in. It's talking about you having complete access and boldness with confidence because of your faith in Christ Jesus. Yeah, but, but, but maybe my faith's not strong enough. Are you born again? That's the faith that we have by him that he's talking about. If you're born again, then you're the God-man that he intended to create on the earth. Now, if we ever got a hold of that, we'd do the works of Jesus. If we ever got a hold of that, I read after men that were used of God in a great way. Smith Wigglesworth is one of my favorites. Wicklesworth used to go into a place, and, and people were the same then as they are now. He'd go into a place, and people have heard about the, the miracles and the, the works of God that were operating through his ministry and stuff. And so everybody came in to see the show. And he said nearly everywhere that he encountered, he had to break through that barrier of unbelief that was coming from the people. They wanted it to be true. They're just like you and me. They wanted the power of God to be true. They wanted the healings and the miracles to be real. They wanted to see them. They wanted to experience them. But they had no experience with it, and so they didn't know what to do or how to do it. You only know what you know. And so he'd come into a place and work, usually have to work for a few days, teaching the word to get one person to believe. And then once he got one person to believe, then things would start happening throughout the meetings. But it took something to break through that. Well, it, during the time that he's breaking through and, and uh, reading after him, when he first started going into meetings in churches and churches in different places like that, he got real discouraged because it wouldn't work to begin with. He couldn't figure it out. And then he realized that what he has to do is he has to teach the word enough to inspire faith to break through the bubble, the barrier of unbelief. And then once that barrier of unbelief is broken, then things begin to flow and and work like crazy. I believe that's where we are in the last days. I believe there's a barrier of unbelief that's created mostly through wrong thinking in the church, maybe even our church, that once we pick up, just a, a, a pinprick hole in this thing. Then it will burst through and, and flow like rivers. That's what Jesus said. He said the power of God will flow like rivers of living water from you. Well, Wigglesworth, during the, the breakthrough days, the early days before anything would happen, he'd laugh. He got he got familiar with it and accustomed to how it would work. So he'd laugh. He'd talk to people and he'd laugh. he said, you don't think God's not going to honor his word tonight, do you? See, there was a boldness that he had. Part of it came from experience. Part of it was the ministry that God gave him, but part of it was experience. See, there's a boldness that comes to experience. Have you ever noticed the prayer that the disciples prayed in Acts 4? After they were, Peter and John got the guy healed in chapter 3 at the beautiful gate of the temple. And then they were taken prisoner and called into question by the, the Jewish council and so forth. and And... They preached it was the name of Jesus. It's not them. It's not some power they had. It's the name of Jesus through faith in his name that the man was made strong. They commanded them. They beat them and commanded them not to preach or teach anymore in the name of Jesus. Peter and John answered and said, Well, whether it's right in your sight for us to obey you or obey God, you decide. We're going to do what God told us to do. So they go back to their own company. Acts chapter 4, about verse 25. They go back to their own company and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. And then they began their prayer. They conclude their prayer with this. They start off talking about how great God is, and then they conclude their prayer with this. They said, Now, Lord, grant unto thy servants that with all boldness we may speak your word by stretching forth your hand to heal, and that signs and wonders may be done in the name of thy holy child Jesus. In other words, he's saying, Give us boldness to experience. Give us boldness to the experience of seeing healings and miracles. That's a good prayer for today's church. See, we can have boldness through our knowledge of God honoring his word. And that's a good thing to have. We can have boldness because of our faith in God's word being true. That's a good thing to have. But it's a totally different thing to have boldness because you have experience in the healing and miracle working power of God. Totally different thing. That's what I'm looking for in the last days. See, I've got confidence that God's word is true. I'll hold fast to God's word no matter what. I don't care if I'm the last person on the earth that does, I'm there. Don't expect to be, but if it is, so what? But it's a totally different thing to have experience. I'd see Brother Hagin go into situations and lay hands on people that I was afraid to be around. I mean, they just the, the conditions just looked so big. that, And, and even some of them were contagious. Brother Hagin go in laughing. I'd stand over in the corner and watch. Don't get too close, you know. Close enough to see, not close enough to catch. But he had a confidence. He had a boldness about him. That was different than anything I'd ever seen. I grew up in a Baptist church. Nobody had confidence about anything. That there was a confidence that Brother Hagin had because of his experience in the healing and the miracle working power of God. That's what the disciples prayed for in Acts 4. That's what I'm praying for for today's church. He said because Jesus is the consummation, the fulfillment of God's eternal plan, the mystery that was hid from the ages. He said because of that we have access and we have boldness with all confidence to come before the throne of God. God wants you in His face. God wants you to walk side by side with Him. God wants you to do the same works that Jesus did. He sent Jesus so that you would. You don't have to talk Him into blessing you. You don't have to talk Him into meeting your needs. You don't have to talk Him into healing your flesh. You don't have to talk Him into anything. This is what God intended from the beginning. God's original intent was the God men to operate here on the earth with the same authority that Jesus had and doing the same works that Jesus did. That brings us to verse 13, the second sentence. Wherefore, wherefore, because this is the way it works, folks. Wherefore, I desire that you faint not at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. In other words, Paul is saying, if I wasn't preaching to the Gentiles, I wouldn't have this trouble. If I wasn't preaching to the Gentiles, if the ministry that God gave me was not to show what this new creation dispensation was about. If my ministry was not to bring both Jews and Gentiles into the family of God. more More Gentiles than Jews in Paul's case. But if that was not God's plan for my life, I wouldn't be having this trouble. Now, why is that? Because there were some that were tempted then as well as today by the devil. Because the devil always works the same in every case. There were some that were tempted to think, you know, if Paul was really operating the will of God, all this trouble wouldn't be happening to him. And the devil works against you in your own individual situations. He attacks you with sickness and then tells you it's your fault. Well, if you were living right, you wouldn't have this stuff to deal with. And that has nothing to do with anything. Ever. With the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Jesus. People get attacked because the devil is an equal opportunity destroyer. That's just the way it works. Somebody being attacked, somebody being in a hard place, somebody being persecuted is not a sign that they did something wrong. In many cases, it's a sign that they're believing something right. And that's what Paul is trying to get across. He's saying, don't be turned away because I am a prisoner in Rome. Don't be turned away because of the trouble that's come against me. Don't be turned away because of the things you've heard that I've experienced. I understand that that's a part of the ministry that I have. Now, Paul apparently Paul had to come to this understanding himself through a process. Because Paul prays, as he relates to us in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul prays for this this evil spirit that's working through people against him, usually the Jews. But working through people against him to stone him, to run, run him out of town, to imprison him and so forth. He prays for this thing to be taken away. He calls it a thorn in the flesh. It's not sickness, it's persecution. He says so. He says, for this thing, i besought the Lord three times that it, or literally he, would be taken away from me. There was a specific uh, demonic assignment, evil spirit assignment, apparently attached to Paul through the words that he uses and the way that he describes it. That would stir up trouble against him everywhere he goes. If you look at the Book of Acts, there's only one town that he didn't get run out of, at least the first time he was there. Only one. Paul's pattern was to go into the town, find the synagogue, preach in the synagogue, then tell him about Jesus, get run out of town. That was his, that was his pattern. Now he started a church in between that, but that's the way it usually went. Even some of the places where he had the greatest success, he still got run out of town. In Ephesus, we saw the ruins of Ephesus. Magnificent ruins of Ephesus and the city. Paul had the greatest ministry success of any place that he was ever, ever was in Ephesus. He spent three and a half years in Ephesus and still got run out of town at the end of three and a half years. That's his resume. Preach, get run out of town. And that's what he's talking about. He says, don't be turned away because of the trouble that I'm under. It's part of the ministry. Remember, Paul told Anani- uh, not Paul, told uh, Ananias—not Jesus told Ananias that in Acts chapter 9. He says to Ananias, go to where Paul is and lay hands on him that he might receive his sight. This is after the Damascus Road experience. He said, for I must show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. I must show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. Now, folks... I want you to understand, Paul had a great responsibility to complete the Word of God, to tell us about who we are in Christ. But he also had a ministry assignment that meant he's going to spend his ministry time in trouble. Not too many people sign up for that. But Paul didn't turn away from it. Paul didn't turn away from it. In other words, he says, don't let my trouble stop you from being the God-man that God intended on the earth. It's because of the message and the importance of the message and and the, the power behind the message of the new creation that the devil's trying to stop my ministry. Don't let that turn you off. And folks, it did. Paul writes to Timothy couple of years later Timothy who was at Ephesus at that time, pastoring the church at Ephesus at that that time and he says all men have turned away from me, all all those at Ephesus have turned away from me once Paul and Peter were put in prison and and, uh, charged with accused with burning Rome even the church turned away from them that's what he's talking about here he says don't faint at my tribulation, don't let that turn you off Understand that it's part of the part of the work that the devil does to discredit the, the good news of Jesus. But they didn't take heed to it; they did turn away from him. Paul said, "All men have left me." You're "The only one I've got." He said, "On on Seferis came and sought me out, but everybody else has gone, except Luke and Timothy." At the end of Paul's ministry, with all the things that he did and all the miracles that he had, with the with laying the groundwork. He had three guys left at the end. Why? Because of the work the devil did trying to discredit him through persecution. Folks, you need to know that. We need to see this as a pattern for how the devil works because persecution will increase in the last days. And a lot of people that are going to be persecuted are going to be railed on by the other church members. And other Christians, they're going to say, well, they handled that wrong. They shouldn't have been so vocal. They shouldn't have been so out front about their beliefs. They should have worked with people and fit in. It's going to be the same thing. Let's learn now so that we're prepared for what comes. Amen. So Paul concludes by saying, don't let my trouble throw you off. You are the new creation, the eternal purpose that God planned for infused with the power of God and the spirit of the Holy Ghost to overcome any and everything the devil works. Then he's going to begin, we'll start next week, he's going to begin, for this cause I bow my knees unto the Father, of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, for this cause, because you are the God-man that God intended and planned and hid from the earth for ages and ages and ages until this present dispensation, I'm going to pray that you be strengthened with power so that you be the church Folks, that is the work of the church, to find out who we are and to be the church. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Thank you for who you've made us in Jesus. Father, I pray that you would strengthen us, even as Paul prayed for the church at Ephesus, that you would strengthen us to be endued with power from on high and conscious of the power of the Holy Ghost within us like never before. That we would stand strong in these last days. That we would be firm in our convictions. And as the work of the enemy increases more and more in the earth. That we would become stronger and stronger in who we are in Christ. Stronger and stronger about what is real and what is true and what is right. And that we would be infilled and fused with the love of God. To display that love in a way like we've never known before. Father we don't want to be known as. The hard nosed church. We want to be known as the loving church that cannot be moved. Father let it be so in us. Let it be so in us. Strengthen us with your power that we might know. The love of Christ which passes knowledge. Father we pray even as the early church prayed in Acts 4 that you would grant unto your servants boldness to speak your word by stretching forth your hand to heal give us boldness to experience Lord thank you for boldness through knowledge but we pray for boldness to experience that salvation would rise as the tide and healings would flow like a river we thank you Father for manifestations of the Holy Ghost, manifestations of revelation and of utterance and of power in us and among us, not only in our services, Father, but in our our members, that we would take the power of God with us when we leave this place. Father, your word says that the glory of the Lord shall be greater in the last days. Than in the former. Thank you Lord for showing us your goodness. Your healing. And your miracle working mercy. Show us your glory Lord. In Jesus precious name. If you can agree with that say amen. 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 Hallelujah. I want to encourage you to do something this week. I want to encourage you to start seeing yourself as a God-man or a God-woman. Not just a human being who's saved, but as God's eternal purpose ordained. The mystery that's been revealed to you. New creations filled with the power and the glory of God. Let's see how that changes our world. Amen? Amen. Well, God bless you. Thank you for being with us. And you're dismissed.